welcome to the Fell Farm. Happy Monday out there. Uh, greetings from the studios at Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Want to give a quick shout out to some of our local business partners in the Des Moines Metro. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, my grocery store, and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has an excellent catering service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant, located on East 5th and Walnut in the East Village, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. They've also got a booth at the Farmer's Market in downtown Des Moines most Saturdays of the month. Uh, thanks also to Sergeant's Garage, located on 6th and College. That's uh, where I've been going for years to fix up my beaters, and they've done a great job at that. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. And uh, finally, thanks to, uh, to Ritual Cafe, located on 13th Street in downtown Des Moines, between Locust and Grand. That's uh, where you get your fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and you'll find an all-vegetarian menu. All right, again, welcome to the Fallon Forum. In the studio with me, Dr. Charles Goldman, just an overview of the uh, program today. We're going to be talking later in the show about a small victory in the Dakota Access uh, battle. Again, Dakota Access wanting to double the amount of oil flowing through the pipeline. And we got a very small but important victory last week. Also, we're going to talk about the, uh, the buzz over reparations for descendants of slaves. We'll also, we'll also talk about um, the Supreme Court. And uh, big rulings coming down relevant to questions on citizenship, gerrymandering, property rights. And we'll also start off the conversation by talking about Joe Biden and how he, he seems to be digging himself a deeper hole every time he opens his mouth. I, I don't know if the uh, Democratic primary voters and caucus goers are going to be able to uh, want to take the risk of having Joe Biden as the nominee, given the all the stuff that's been happening. And maybe I'm wrong. Charles, what do you think? Uh, I, I think there's a reason why Joe Biden has failed in his previous campaigns for the Democratic nomination. I think we're seeing it. One uh, was plagiarism. Right. <laughs> I, if, of course, one of the problems is, is this is what the Democrats are going to do. Um, you know, many of the things that uh, he's being criticized for are, of course, if applied to the president, uh, equally problematic. I mean, for instance, this morning you sent out a number of things, all of which I knew about, uh, just to remind us about the Clarence Thomas hearings, his support for the 1994 bill, which led to mass incarceration of predominantly minorities in this country. Which even Bill Clinton now thinks was a mistake. Yeah. But Joe Biden has not backed away from it. That's true. Yeah. And his, you know, his support for the Hyde Amendment. But remember that he was not alone in his previous support for the Hyde Amendment, because the Hyde Amendment, by the way, is an amendment that generally has been put on spending bills, and it has made it difficult to separate this whole notion of not using federal funds for abortions from the spending bill to which it's attached. A strategy, by the way, I think the Democrats should be employing a lot more hmm. um, for some of the things that we would like them to do. And then, of course, this whole thing, <laughs> this whole thing about working with segregationists. So, first yeah. of all, I mean, within first the of all, these were Democrat, right. the, the Democratic the, segregationists. This wasn't reaching across the aisle. That's correct. Uh, this was reaching across the cultural divide within the Democratic Party. You know, but on the other hand, if you ask the American voter, would they like to see compromise between the two warring sides? Sure. Their answer is yes. So yes. he is... The point he's trying to make, as poorly as he's trying to make it, is that – and I agree with him to some degree on this. You know, it's all real – it's fine for Bernie Sanders to talk about political revolution and everything else. It ain't going to happen. Well, this is, this that's is not, a debatable point. It it's, may not, it's not it going to happen. It has to happen. happen. <laughs> you know, well, the it, direction of the country is – But it, it is not happening in 2020. Revolution. It's not happening well, in 2020. But – and so I think it's just as fanciful for Bernie to talk about this revolution. What would be the, well, dri what would be the driving force for this revolution? Sanders is not the only presidential candidate on the Democratic side talking about essentially a revolution within government. In fact, he's in, the, the, the revolutionary brand is in the majority right now. You've got a handful like Biden who seem to be more comfortable with the even – though, even though Biden called, for example, a middle ground approach on climate, he ended up embracing a rather revolutionary approach to dealing with the climate problem. 
So I don't I don't know if I agree with you, Charles. I have to say I'm, I'm not sure you're right this time. Okay, but what <laughs> what, is, what is the goal of the Democratic Party in 2020? The goal of the Democratic Party is always to elect Democrats, even if they used to be Republicans, even if they vote like Republicans. It doesn't matter. The goal of the Democratic Party is to elect Democrats. Okay, I'm not saying that's specifically admirable or right. for 2020. Number one goal is to beat Trump. Beat Trump. Right. Number two goal, which makes number one goal meaningless if it doesn't happen, is to turn the Senate. So if you don't turn the Senate, we just have potentially another Obama administration, which tries Good to luck. which tries mm-hmm. to rule by executive mm-hmm. order, and you see what happens right. when you rule by executive order. Okay. So back to Biden. Yeah. Here he is continually putting his foot in his mouth. I mean, mm-hmm. there there are some who think, well, what he said about these two segregationists um, and referencing the word boy. Uh, which is again a very very uh, volatile term. Yes, when you I, I mean I, I was kind of stunned by that follow up. Well, Forget he, about the <clears throat> talking about you know the segregation. Yeah, but but he but I mean I I thought Cory Booker's challenge to him and response to him was was spot on. I thought it was a solid response. I think it was the usual overreaction as the Democrats always do. Cory Booker is trying to gain some traction. I personally like Cory Booker, but he's he's getting he's getting no traction. And that was part of his his you know asking for an apology. Um, not why we why not why not apologize for something that is clearly offensive to a large percentage of the primary <laughs> of, the, of the caucus. You know, it's largely to offensive to white liberals on the left because if you do the polling on the African Americans in this country, you know, let's go down to South Carolina. They are actually much more pragmatic than uh, the white liberals on the left. Okay, so you think Joe Biden is getting getting uh, treated a bit too hard on this one? Uh, you know, I, I, I agree. I, no, I think he I, is. I don't. I, I, th- I think Booker was right on to challenge him. And I, I think well, he, I'm not I think disagreeing that Booker was right to challenge him. What I'm saying is, is again, a lot of the a lot of the purity test comes from the ten percenters in the Democratic Party who tweet all day, you know, and who are sure. the the people who want purity. And if we and if Democrats big, want purity, they're going to lose. Well, well, okay, but the um, but but it, I think the bigger problem here is that Biden tends to. Shoot off the cuff, and you never know what he's going to say or how it's going to turn out. I mean, case in point, on May 1st here in Des Moines, when challenged to talk strongly about climate change, he did that for a bit, and then he launched into this praise for the U.S. becoming the biggest oil producer in the world, which is, I mean, it's just bizarre in so many I mean, that's just bad policy, but it makes no sense in terms of trying to respond to a, an audience that wants climate action by saying Which that, audience? The 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 size of people dressed up as penguins. <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, climate change is the number one priority for Iowa caucus goers. So I'm going to say, even at a Biden event, mm-hmm. the vast majority there want him to be strong on climate action. And here he is talking about being the biggest. I mean, boasting about being the biggest oil producer in the world. That right. makes no sense. See, I think that's what a lot of folks are concerned about. Mm-hmm. It's not just the content of what he says, but the fact that you never know quite where he's going to go. And and, and, then, and then there's all this backtracking to do. You know, maybe he's better off plagiarizing stuff because then at least you know what, what material you're working with. I'm yeah. not serious about the recommendation, by the way. But, well, you know, you know, and again, here's 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 the the standard. So we go back to Biden being called on plagiarizing during one of his previous campaigns. What about Melania cribbing? Uh, you know. The president, President Obama's uh, wife, I'm blanking on her first name again. Right, but, but again, yeah. again, the, the Michelle, amazing thing is... You know, right. Plagiarizing Michelle Obama. Here's the weird thing, and this is not fair, it's not right, it doesn't make any sense, but pretty much Donald Trump can get away with saying whatever he wants. And I guess that would go for Melania, too. Who doesn't say who's very tame compared to him? Uh-huh. But it seems like Trump can get away with things that used to absolutely tank any other politician in the past, and even still tanks some today. Well, it, it, but, it's know. because the system, <laughs> the system as it's presently set up, is minority rule. So he doesn't convince anybody. He's already got an approval rating, disapproval rating that's well over fifty percent in this country. Yeah. So the point is, that the cult members that vote for him are don't care. Yeah. And the, but no, let, let me let's talk realistically. I'm I'm with you that I don't believe Biden is the best candidate. And what happens at polls right now, head to head, don't mean anything. Right, it's a poll. The polling right. is so premature at this point. Exactly. So, let's get back to the key point, which is: Do you believe that we should have a candidate on the Democratic side 
who represents the more left wing. And remember, left wing in the United States is centrist to right in a lot of other countries. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, who, but the, the <laughs> Republican reported, Party, right. the, the, the American Repo- the U.S. Republican Party is the only political party in the world that embraces climate denial, for example. Right. Well, forget, forget that. <laughs> All I'm saying is... That's how extreme it is. So do you, do you believe that we should run a uh, campaign based on political calculation or that the Democrats should run a campaign appe- appealing to the base? This I, is the main question. I think when voters try to... When voters listen to pundits who try to get them to think that that there's, there's, a, there's a set of um, criteria that define electability, they lose. I'm not they, even using the word electability. I'm asking you, what well, is the strategy? The strategy should be to elect a candidate that has broad appeal, I mean, just, just very generically broad appeal, and that can also accomplish the things that are going to need to be done. And again, it's not a small list, and it's not a timid list, and it's not a middle ground list. Mm-hmm. And so, I, and, I, and I think, you know, I, I, certainly Bernie Sanders has been the standard bearer of that since 2016, but now he's got a lot of company. There are a lot of candidates who embrace that. And I think, you know, again, there's no way of proving this, of course, but a lot of folks feel very strongly that Sanders would have beaten Trump. And what does it matter? It doesn't, well, it, well, no, it does matter because it matters now that we, we don't make the same mistake, that the Democrats don't make the same mistake, whether it's in a presidential election or elsewhere, of trying to overthink the question of electability and ignore the reality that, that, that the, the things that, um, that need to happen are things that most people want to see happen. And so if you, um, if you, if you nominate candidates that uh, are going to, I mean, I, mean, I mean, actually Mitt Romney is a great example on the Republican side. Mitt Romney seemed like the most electable candidate because he was, he was, uh, he, he was gentle on the ears. He had a, a kind of a mixed bag track record. You know, he had things he did on health care and whatnot that would appeal to independent voters, to, to Democratic voters who might swing over, and he lost badly. You know, John Although, Cape, ironically, thing. Romney got a percentage point more popular votes than the President Trump did. I know. Well, that's because of the, 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 the flawed existence of the uh, of the uh, electoral college but uh right and so many uh so much gerrymandering going on but um yeah i, I just i just think uh you know democrats really have to be careful to be be sure to nominate somebody who is who is going to appeal to a broader universe than hillary clinton did and that i think joe biden will and again that that's a separate question than what we're discussing today because joe biden's bigger problem is his inability not to put his foot in his mouth. I, see, I disagree. I think that is the fundamental question because the Democrats can only achieve many of the things that you and I would prefer policy-wise by winning in another wave election because if they don't alter the situations in the states that allow right. for the gerrymander, they don't alter the Senate at least to a point where it's 50-50, and, and if they don't take out Mitch McConnell, who wins the presidency in some sense doesn't matter. It well, matters it to a degree. Matter. You can still, it matters you can to still a do a lot as but president, is, regardless is, of what But this is where the, the Republicans, they, you know, they've played the long game for a very, very long time. And they understood where the, where the nexus of power is in the United States right now is in the states being able to control the election process there and in the courts being able to control the tenor of the courts because no one legislates anymore in great detail. They leave everything to the courts. We'll talk about that in the census issue. The census is supposed to be run by Congress. Why is it in the Supreme Court? Good segue. (laughs) We're going to come back from a short break here and talk about the Supreme Court. Uh, Big rulings today, actually, and uh, a couple have already happened. More coming this week. Uh, We'll talk about the uh, citizenship question, the the gerrymandering issue, a property rights uh, uh, decision that, that came down interestingly with the conservative justices voting, you know, well, probably the way that a lot of a lot of eminent domain opponents would like. We'll talk about even though it's not exactly an eminent domain ruling. Well, we'll talk more about that when we come back from a short break. Again, Charles Goldman with us here in the studio. And if you're listening on our live stream, we'll be back with a, a new feed here shortly after this break. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. 
For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price every time. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 515-246-8149. That's 515-246-8149. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant... Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Form Ed Fallon with you here, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. We're in the studios of Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Later in the program, we'll be talking about a small victory in the Dakota Access pipeline fight. Yeah, that's still going on because Dakota Access wants to double the amount of oil flowing through the pipeline. We'll also uh, talk about the uh, increased and heated conversation over reparations to the descendants of slaves. But now we're going to switch gears again and go to look at the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, or SCOTUS, as some like to call it. Uh, A lot of things on the docket. And for those who think that elections don't matter, this Supreme Court is is markedly different, I think you can say, than any Supreme Court in U.S. history. And some of the cases coming before us are cases you probably would never see discussed. Uh, But now, here they are, with some... Some rulings that would be, well, we've already seen rulings that are inconsistent with some previous decisions. But uh, one of the most interesting ones deals with citizenship and a question that the Trump administration wants to see included in the U.S. Census, which has already been struck down by, what, three different um, court levels, I believe? And so now it's going before the U.S. Supreme Court, where we may well expect a very different ruling. Well, the, the, the question is that um, the the Commerce Department, which runs the census... Commerce Department. Right. right. Um, wants to add a question asking, are you a citizen of the United States, to the census. Um, if you look at the case law... See, it's interesting. One, you, you talked about what's the unique thing about this court. The unique thing about this court is it has almost zero uh, respect for any precedent in terms of its decisions. It feels free to just make law as right. you go along. Right, right. Um, and so 
it, it seems to me that it's inescapable that they're going to decide the Commerce Department has the right to change the question because, in fact, they've already decided that in previous cases. So how come three other levels of, uh, of judicial wisdom ruled otherwise? Um, I can't say specifically. I think that they got caught – the other courts got caught up in the process. This which, is in, uh, all, all, they're all in New York. They were, yeah. I believe they were all, yeah, eastern right. seaboard. Yeah, and Donald Trump's home state. <laughs> well, but, you know, they, they were presented with information, and now there's more information out there, that this was clearly an attempt to um, achieve a partisan goal. How do we know that? Uh, well, because a uh, – first of all, Ross lied to Congress, and then – Who? The, uh, Wilbur Ross, okay. the secretary – of, of Congress lied to Congress about where the question came from, and he claimed that it, you know, that it was the Justice Department that wanted it. In fact, it was his department that wanted it. How was that proven? Uh, from emails. Ah. Okay. And oh, they they actually turned them over. Yeah. Wow. And who then knew the Freedom of Information this, Act still still held any value? Yeah. This this Republican <laughs> gerrymander specialist died. You know, I think this year, and his daughter came across a hard drive in which uh, a material from 2015 showed that they knew exactly what this question would do, that it would cause a serious undercount of uh, Hispanics, for the most part, uh, around nine million nationwide. Okay, so, how does that affect voting? Well, it affects voting because the census is used. Well, let, let's go back to the decision. Okay. First of all, it, 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 the case law is pretty clear that the Census Bureau can ask unrelated questions. And citizenship is actually an unrelated like what question. Is, what is your favorite color? Well, do you listen to the radio, things like this. Oh, really? You can ask that? Yeah. I was joking about the color. No, no. I mean, it, okay. these, these – all, all <laughs> Do you listen to the Fallon form? Is that, that going to be on <laughs> that, that would be an unrelated okay, question. Good. <laughs> now, remember what the Constitution says. The Constitution does not say that we count citizens. The Constitution says we count residents. Right, sure. And it's pretty clear because remember in the Constitution, they uh, counted the slaves as two-thirds of a resident – Three-fifths. Right. Three-fifths oh, three yeah. right. three yeah. of a resident. Um, clearly, they were not citizens. So there, there isn't a question that the census right. is supposed to count people living in the United and, States. And presently, one very, very important uh, element of that is that, that federal aid to cities, I and mean, again, well, yeah, some of the tax— We'll get to this. We'll but but to that, that's a big part of why that's important. Well, the way, the way what the census does is it creates apportionment of house districts based on population because the one man, one vote— one person, one vote. Um, it creates how do you apportion federal aid? Because again, it, you get a, a your proportion of population. Though that aid includes Medicaid, that aid includes uh, maintenance of your highways. You know that aid includes block grants, a whole bunch of things. Um, and it also uh, you know is is used uh, to decide on. Uh, other issues, but for the most part, most importantly, it's used to apportion the electoral votes, which obviously are based on right. the House representatives. Yeah. So what's going on here is it's this. You see, once again, the media is focusing on one thing, the citizenship question, which I will guarantee you is going to be held to be constitutional. Because right. once again, who's supposed to be running and overseeing the census? Yeah. Not the executive branch. It's supposed to be Congress overseeing the census. Right. So they have abdicated, as they always do, to the courts to figure this out. And the courts are going to say, not really our decision to start with. Plus, the, the Constitution, you know, previous case law is pretty clear. You can ask unrelated questions. So, the question has been asked before. It was asked in 1950. So, so basically, Congress defers to the courts who will, who will defer to the Trump administration. It's all like the Mueller will, report. Who will get their right. get their Yeah, we'll, we'll defer back to the court. Yeah. Well, no. Should, how, what could the Democrats do to stop this? Well, no, I'm asking you legitimately. No, no, right now, nothing. I mean, just the, Congress, the court of public opinion. If Congress is the overseer of the census, yeah. what could they do to stop it? Understand that this is not just something that the uh, – it's not just about the census question. It's also about the fact that the Trump administration has already underfunded the census. Mm -hmm. They are wanting to guarantee an undercount. Mm -hmm. Because the undercount allows them – and weirdly, this is what's weird. If they actually allowed all of the immigrant population to be counted, it would be advantageous to states like Texas. They would pick up three seats. Yeah. It would be disadvantageous to states like New York, Minnesota, um, and a bunch – Ohio and Illinois. Probably Iowa. 
No, Iowa was not. In fact, there's a good thing on Real Clear Politics talking about the projections based on what we know as best we can about the population of the United States right now and where it's distributed. Um, states that would pick up seats would be t- and get more funding mm-hmm. would be Texas, Florida, North Carolina, uh, New Mexico. I'm sorry, Colorado, Arizona, and Oregon. Mm-hmm. And Overall, the Republicans would actually pick up two electoral votes in states they've previously won if they let the census count go to really be as accurate as possible. But they already have a good deal as far as they're concerned with the 2010 census, which, by the way, the Republicans spent a lot of time complaining about. (laughs) Um, So they're kind of playing the game of it's better to know what's going to happen, even if it means that Texas is going to be hurt if immigrants underreport. Because they would get more money from the federal government for, for things. Mm-hmm. And they would get more electoral votes. Um, so th- that's part of what's a little strange, which is the, it probably would favor the Republicans to allow the count to go and be as accurate as possible. But they don't want to take any chances because they already have a good deal as far as they're concerned from right. 2010. Right. Now, you know, the other question is what could you do about it? What could you as Ed Fallon do about it? You know, and there has been the question of should, well, we, just not answer, should we just not answer the census? <laughs> Oh, that, is, that, if, is, is, that, is that strategy being proposed? It has been proposed, really? and it's an interesting question. That is interesting. Because if – so, And also illegal. Well, it's illegal, but how many – if it millions of people don't do it, are they going to find millions of people? Well, there's no reason they wouldn't – they couldn't try. That's and, true. Uh, they, I mean the Trump administration could declare it an emergency and put a lot of extra uh, staff into cracking down on, on people who uh, don't pay their fines. Or, or don't file the census and collect those fines? I, I have a little trouble thinking that would happen based on, you know, their uh, strategy against the mandate for yeah. uh, the ACA. So that has been suggested. But on the other hand, the Census Bureau has <clears> said <throat> that they will still count people even if you don't completely fill out the census. Um, they're thinking about doing they, – they're already doing big data uh, in that appraisals of postal addresses – to figure out how many people actually live in the state. So they may override this anyway, which is the irony, yeah. is that all this all this sturm and drang around this question, which I, I, I understand why it's going on, yeah. you know, is, a, is missing the point, which is you may be counted anyway even if you don't fill it out. So let, let's switch gears to another Supreme Court ruling sure. that's coming down, and that's relevant to gerrymandering. Well, there was already one that was relevant to gerrymandering, which was about uh, the gerrymander in Virginia. Yeah. As we know— And that came down in the Democrats' favor, which Well, was, right. But let's, uh, let's talk a little specifically about it. Yeah. Uh, so what's going on in the United States? What's going on in the United States is that whoever controls the legislature at the time of the redistrict, uh, redistrict, redistricting has the ability to essentially cage the other party's voters it, in large districts. Not in all states. And again, Iowa is an Iowa, exception. Absolutely. Iowa but, but, is geographically but, split the state basically in four. But Republicans here want to change that. That's correct. <laughs> which That's is, correct. Which, which is, could hurt them as much as it could hurt Democrats. Right. But what happens in other states is they cage the likely Democratic voters in very large districts that are not necessarily geographically contiguous. So they can see those districts of Democrats. They see them. And so what the result, for instance, in Virginia was that in Virginia in 2017, for instance, the Democrats won 54 percent of the vote, but they ended up with 45 percent of the representatives. Yeah, wow. It's worse than other states. So what what happened in this case was that it was clear that this was a racial gerrymander, which even this Supreme Court had said previously – is uh, problematic. However, they didn't decide that case based on that. They actually, <laughs> they actually didn't decide the merit of the case. They simply said that the the Senate in Virginia had no standing as a totality because where was the harm to the Virginia Senate? So their decision was literally there was no standing to bring the case, which is why it united some pretty weird yeah. people. Because it was Gorsuch. It was 7-2 vote, was, right? No, it was 5-4. It was Gorsuch. Oh, I'm thinking of another one. Yeah, you're thinking of another one. It was yeah. Gorsuch, um, Clarence Thomas of all right, people, right, right. Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan, uh, and Kagan. Yeah. yeah. With Breyer voting with the rest of the conservatives. Interesting, yeah. But they basically said <clears throat> that the, the conglomerate, the Senate, could not show harm. It left open the question of could a Republican senator from Virginia, in, in their Senate, not, not the U.S. Senate, have brought the case claiming harm with the redistricting. 
so, and there's two more cases coming up, one involving a uh, Democratic redistricting in Maryland, Maryland think, and yeah. the other involves Florida, I believe. No, North Carolina, which is a total racial redistrict. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what they're going to decide those two cases on. Mm-hmm. So while it seems a victory, because that gerrymander was so anti-democratic in Virginia, it, it basically was a procedural vote on the fact that they said, well, they just don't have standing. It didn't yeah. really resolve the question. Yeah. Well, it, it is interesting that despite the court being regarded, I mean, rightfully as the most, quote, conservative in, the, in, in U.S. history, there are still some votes that, uh, that don't go the way that the hardcore conservatives who backed those appointments would like. That's interesting. And, right. Well, and, and that's been the history of, of Supreme Court appointments in the past. I mean, you know, the most liberal court in the history of the United States was the Warren Court during the late 50s early, and 60s. Earl Warren was a law and order attorney general in California before he was appointed chief justice. And then, of course, he leads a court that's highly liberal. Mm-hmm. You know, and so you can never predict. Now, the problem, of course, is, is that many of the justices now from the Federalist Society have been basically cloned and, and, and indoctrinated from the time they were teens to believe in this pseudo-originalist interpretation of the yeah. Constitution that they supposedly So, um, to. again, there's, 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 so there's so many Supreme Court cases that are worth talking about. We sure. can't cover them all. But one other that interests me that's already been ruled on mm-hmm. is the one involving uh, Mrs. Nick. A Nick? K-N-I-C-K, I think. From uh, which state is it? Which East Coast state? New Jersey, New York. New York. Anyway, she has like 90 acres of, uh, of land. Uh, a nice coastal community, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, she raises horses there. And she has a, an old cemetery. Yeah. And that cemetery is entirely on her property. But since some of the people allegedly buried there are her neighbors, they, there was some interest in access. And the uh, local authority ruled that, um, that uh, the public should have access to that cemetery, I think, in certain reasonable hours. And um, normally that case would be appealed to a local you know, judicial district. Well, and just yeah, just local district or state. court, district court or, or local or state, or state court, yeah. yeah. But uh, this this time it and it did actually, but now now it's gone to the Supreme Court. Where the Supreme Court ruled five to four in favor of her right not to not to be preempted by a local regulation. Uh, and and the uh, the uh, dissent again the four more liberal justices in the dissent with Elena Kagan just raging against it, mm-hmm. um, talking about how it. Is a total overturn from from previous judicial multiple um, cases, not yeah. just one. Right, right. right. But um, but I, you know, I'm I'm looking at this from the lens of somebody interested in in uh, eminent domain as it has been used to justify the construction of pipelines. Mm-hmm. And I know this is a regulation versus the use of eminent domain. But I, I wonder if there is uh, there is any applicability, uh, any 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 impact on case law that might be relevant to, you know, pipeline takings, takings for oil pipelines, gas pipelines. I I don't know. I don't. I think the ink is still fairly wet on this one, and I don't know. But um, well, that, it interests I, me. For, yeah. Now, from what I understand, that is everyone's concern, which is, um, does this set a new precedent? Uh, whereby uh, it's basically a discussion of, of the non-delegation clause of the Constitution. Basically, what is the state's rights versus what are federal rights? Right, and the decision here is the federal court does have um, an opportunity, a, a right to weigh in on behalf of individual landowners, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on cases that normally historically have gone to the state. <coughs> and again, I, I don't know whether that will apply uh, as some, you know, apply to eminent domain cases, but I, I think it's just a matter of time where you might see some of these cases, whether it be in Iowa, North Dakota, Illinois, South Dakota, the, the many, many other states that are fighting, where, where people are, where land, landowners, are, landowners and farmers are fighting uh, oil companies mm-hmm. uh, that want to take their land for a pipeline. I, I, I don't know for sure, but I'd be fascinated to see how this moves possibly in that direction. Well, it, 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 the question is, is the substance of the case that they, they found for her Therefore, for her private property rights, yeah. or is the substance of the case that they're saying that states can be overridden, for instance, in their unwillingness to give for certificates to uh, yeah. due to their water pollution rules but to these companies? The other fascinating thing about this was it was the Supreme Court, a previous Supreme Court, of course, that ruled against the Kilo family, 
when they sued, uh, was it New London, Connecticut? Oh, for the shopping center? Yeah, the, the, the shopping center, the, their land, their houses were destroyed, bulldozed to build a shopping center that never was built. Mm-hmm. But the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the city against the landowner. Right. And that's what, that's what uh, put in motion this, this wave of uh, legislation across the country at the state level to try to define eminent domain as, a, as intended only for public purposes, not for private uses like a shopping mall. And so it's fascinating to me that you have a Supreme, the Supreme Court. I mean, again, different makeup, mm-hmm. not entirely, but, uh, but a bunch of different members now ruling in a very different direction. Well, you know, the irony of all this, of course, is that um, the Republicans always tout that it's the liberals who are the activist judges. Well, yeah. And <laughs> well, that kind of as, goes both ways. Well, it? yes, it does. Yes. But, of course, as, as much of our politics is marked by, particularly on, in the Trump era, it, you know, the Republicans project on the Democrats the very things that they're, of course, doing. Right. And this notion that originalism somehow is not activism is ludicrous. Yeah. You know, but uh, no, I, I mean, I agree with you. These, these are things that are fascinating because, again, it's unclear whether it's the facts of the case they're talking about or is it the spirit of the law that they're talking about yeah. here. So later in the program, we're going to talk more about the Dakota Access Pipeline because... Oh, I'm sure. People are really looking forward to that. Ed. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's a big deal because they want to double the flow of oil through the pipeline and uh, they feel they have the right to do that without any input from state government and it seems like there may be some some concern among uh, at the level mm-hmm. at the Iowa Utilities Board level we'll see uh, but initially some of the response has been favorable toward more input more public conversation more more um, more oversight mm-hmm. we'll see where that goes we'll, we'll talk about that when we come back uh, but first I actually we'll talk about later later in the program when we come back we're going to talk about the um, the heated conversation over whether the government should be providing reparations to the descendants of U.S. slaves. We'll talk about that on the Fallon Forum when we come back in a couple minutes. Fallon Forum. Welcome back. This is Ed Fallon, your host. Uh, a quick shout-out again to the folks here at Lorena, 1260 AM, 96.5 FM, our host studio. And thanks also to the stations around Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program. A reminder, if you miss it, well, you can always go back and check out the live stream, if you don't mind seeing Charles. <laughs> uh, uh, or you can also... Wearing his blue shirt. Wearing his, uh, yeah, rubbing it in, wearing the St. Louis blue shirt, just in case there's any Bruins fans anywhere nearby. Uh, and again, you can also hear it as a podcast on the Fallon Forum website. Again, in the extra segment of the program, we're going to talk about the Dakota Access Pipeline and the, uh, the, the development that has some positive aspects to it. But first, uh, I want to take a look at the, um, the uh, conversation that's brewing over the proposal to pay reparations to the descendants of slaves. Charles, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's generating a lot of buzz uh, among the 2020 Democratic candidates. Well, it's, they're, being, they're being forced to. Right, yeah. <laughs> to, yeah right. to say something. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe, maybe some of them want to anyhow. Mm-hmm. But uh, what, what, what's your, again, on the merits of the proposal, and the proposal is, again, well, what, 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 came, about Funny, was, I mean, what came about was the House introduced a bill, first one in 10 years, to uh, establish a commission to once again examine the feasibility as well as the purposes of paying reparations to descendants of And uh, Mitch McConnell had a companion bill in the Senate, right? Well, of course. I mean, <laughs> that's, as I said before, uh, we, you know, McConnell... Uh, revels in in that the Senate is where bills go to die. Yes. Um, now, the, the, you know what intrigues me about this, and and I, I go back to this with um, I always have trouble pronouncing his name. Tana Hesse's Coates article in the 2014 Atlantic, uh, talking about the case for reparations. He's a very articulate guy. Right. Grew up uh, in Baltimore. Knows inner city poverty, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, he made a, a very intriguing case for it's not just about the money. It's about it's about kind of like what reconciliation was for South Africa in terms of apartheid. Uh, now, it'll probably interest you to um, 
to know that Dr. Goldman, you know, the other Dr. Goldman, yeah, the, uh, totally the, the real is, Dr. Against, Goldman. is against <laughs> reparations. Um, really? Well, his argument is that um, we've already paid the price. Whites have already paid the price. Really? Because they were the ones who died en masse in the Northern Army um, to free the slaves. That is a bizarre argument. No, that's not a bizarre argument. Really? That's very but much the argument a lot of people make. Yeah. Okay, that the okay. reparations have already but, but been paid. But what, what, what about all the residual uh, impacts of slavery that, have, that continue to exist today? Well, well look, the, the, the internal logic of that argument doesn't hold. Not that logic makes much difference in this time of, of no truth. But the internal, on the other hand, if you make that argument, right, it usually is companioned with, well, I wasn't there when slavery was still active in right. the United States. It's not my fault. Right. So you get a pass because you weren't there, but you take on the mantle of people who are not your direct forebearers, since many of us were immigrants to this country, who died to make slavery go away. You can't play it both ways. If they died for you to make slavery go away, you can't absent yourself. And you know who would, who would say that we can't absent ourselves from the historical price of slavery? Abraham Lincoln would say that. Mm. Read Abraham Lincoln's book. Well, I'm sorry. Read Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural. Read Gary Wills' book on the second inaugural. And you'll understand that, that Lincoln understood many things. I mean, he's a very religious man. But he understood that the price of slavery had to be paid by multiple generations and that if it had to be paid in blood, so be it. He also, in the second inaugural, pointed to the fact that the Northern, the North was, although they turned abolitionist, was highly complicit in the slave trade because they made money off the maritime aspects of the slave trade. So uh, here's a question. All right. Uh, yeah. So if, uh, if we should decide as a country that some type of reparation is appropriate to the descendants of, of slaves, then why would we not also want to provide some kind of reparation to the descendants well, of, of, of Native Americans? We've already done that. That's already happened. Okay, so... Uh, it was not a, It was not a, a... We've already done that. We've done that in the 40s and again well, later on. We've done that Sure, twice. the Native American community doesn't feel very satisfied with that, that resolution. Well, I understand that. But, yeah. but money was paid. It was... Well, why, is that, why, is it, why is it just about money? Well, no. I mean, there was an apology and money was paid in the 40s and 50s toward the Native American community. Whether they feel it was adequate or not, at least an attempt at taking mm -hmm. responsibility. Now, we've taken responsibility to the extent that the House of Representatives twice has, um, and it's supported by the Senate, I think, on one occasion, made apologies for slavery. Now, the point you make, which, of course, everyone misses, is it's not just slavery. It's also Jim Crow. Mm -hmm, yeah. and, and what Coates' really best argument in his, in his article in 2014 was, it's not just about slavery. It's about redlining in Chicago. It's about the fact that, that whites were able to take advantage of GI Bill low mortgage rates, and most of the wealth, for those who are not in the top 1%, is in their houses. Mm. And whites were able to get houses at cheap prices <clears> in the 50s, while the, the right. African-Americans were redlined out of multiple areas in Chicago couldn't use the GI Bill to get the low rates and therefore that's one reason why to this day the, Afri the average wealth of an African American household in this country is either one sixth to one tenth of that of the average white household. Even more in some places where did I just see that in Boston which is considered one of the more racially divided you know, cities in the nation mm -hmm. the average uh, the, the average net worth of a white family mm -hmm. 254000 the average net worth of a black family, eight dollars. Mm. I mean, that's that's like almost an unthinkable discrepancy. Right. I mean, and, you know, that's one of the things about racism in the United States. Because I went to school in Boston during the Southie riots, when yeah. you know the 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 Irish, for the most part, the Irish who inhabited the southern part of the city, yeah. did not want black children bust into their schools, and they didn't want their kids bust into Dorchester. Ouch. Right. And this is in a city which <clears throat> is seen as America's like. Oxford, you know, whatever. I thought it was Athens. Athens, yeah, maybe. So, you know, I mean, this was a city with <laughs> many of major, MIT, Harvard, other major universities there. And yet that's the city which, as you point out, is, was and maybe still in some ways is one of the most racist cities in the country. Mm. So what interests me is <clears throat> um, if you ask, and, and, and Dave Lenhart in, in The Times did a great article, if you ask African Americans what they care about in terms of what they think would help their economic situation in the United States, of the 14 things they were asked, 
reparations was last. Yeah. This is, once again, right. oftentimes, <laughs> white liberals and intellectuals raising issue. And, you know, Coates, although he grew up in inner city Baltimore, is an intellectual. He's not teaching at colleges, but this man got a genius grant from MacArthur, you know, MacArthur Fellowship three, four years ago. So what's your prediction in terms of where this is going to go, both um, policy-wise first and then politically, specifically with regards to the, to the uh, presidential candidates? Um, <clears throat> policy-wise, I would say um, it will go nowhere. Thanks it, to it, Mitch McConnell? Well, or? of course, thanks to Mitch McConnell, yeah. Um, I'd like to see the question brought up in a presidential debate so that the president has to answer that question. Um, they get a pass. It's always the Democrats that have to answer these questions. I don't think, as I said, that in, in terms of the modern African-American, it's that important of an issue. They would like to see other things that would stop discrimination in the workplace yeah. and, um, and in other scenarios. And uh, that would be much more substantive. A minimum wage would be much more substantive. Um, I, I think it's interesting to me that reparations represents what the powers, the oligarchs, want us to do, right? What they want us to do is be separated by a phony distinction which is race. Right. Or really what they want us to be separated by is a phony distinction, which is skin color. Uh, how about this for reparations? How about we pay the American worker, you know, $40,000 that we owe every American worker, which is the amount of money that's been appropriated from them when productivity and wages diverged. Hmm. And we're just talking about going back to 2000. In the last 20 years, the American worker who on an average family of four has an <clears throat> income of $75,000 should have an average, average income of $110,000. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I guess I agree that something should be done, but when you start, this kind of, what you just said kind of highlights the problem. How far do you go? I mean, should, you know how far should, you go? You go with some sort of universal income. See, uh, you're, 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 you're on the uh, Yang Gang bandwagon. I'm on, I believe that there's reparations <laughs> to pay that are not based on race. There are reparations to pay. To what, any about the, what about the LGBT community? Person. Well, I mean, a lot of discrimination though, there, a lot of harm, uh, some death. I agree. You know, but but once again, everybody's got a grievance in the United States, and this is if you if you continue to do piecemeal politics, which is what essentially is going on, then the oligarchs win. Until you see yourself as part of a class that's being, in general, abused. So in a minute, go in a minute, what do you see as the uh, as the uh, optimal solution to the conversation about reparations? I think there should be a reconciliation commission on on a commission slavery. that decides what that that reminds the American people, especially the aggrieved white person in this country, because that's of course what President Trump's going to run on, um, that their advantage <clears throat> still are advantaged in this country, you know, and put it on TV, you know, let people see this. Americans are educated but ill-informed, and I think that you know that would be a that in of itself would be something that this country would benefit from. Whether it ends up in payment, yes, you can make all the arguments how difficult it would be, who you would identify as descendants, who gets paid. Sure, I understand it's difficult, but at least do the reconciliation part of it. Yeah. At least take, take the history of the United States, talk about eugenics, talk about lynching, talk about the things that happen in this country, and then don't well, stand there as Democrats do and say, oh, the LGBT community is just as bad. Yeah. No. Well, I these mean, people were slaves. This is this is maybe maybe a, a good good model is what Germany did after World War II mm -hmm. to incorporate um, extensive conversations, discussion, education about the uh, Holocaust. Right. Uh, and, and it's an ongoing it's an ongoing generational conversation now that I think they see as a buffer against falling into that. Uh, that yeah. No, uh, you're that, right. That because the future. people like McConnell are getting a pass saying, <clears throat> "Well, I wasn't around when slaves were around. He was definitely around when Jim Crow was still in, in force." Yeah. Well, hey, uh, we're going to take a quick uh, quick shout-out to some of the local businesses that make this program possible. Again, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Thanks also to Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. Uh, give Yingsa a, a shout for all your tax and accounting needs. Uh, thanks also to Diversity Insurance, located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. No appointment needed. Stop by. That's Diversity Insurance. 
Our thanks also to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant on Southeast 14th Street in Des Moines. Authentic Mexican food at excellent prices and very, very friendly service. And finally, thanks to Namaste Restaurant located on 7500 University Ave in Clive. Uh, Indian food from both the south and the north. That's Namaste Restaurant. And again, thanks to the folks here at uh, the studio, uh, Juan Rodriguez, uh, Lenny Montola, uh, to Ashley Martinez, our producer, and Sherry Herdina, our post-production assistant. Again, thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. Dr. Charles Goldman still with me in the studio here. Just can't seem to get rid of him. <laughs> it's good to be here. You know what else we can't seem to get rid of is Dakota Access. Uh, you, just when you think the whole thing is settled, they've built their pipeline. They're pumping their 570,000 barrels of oil a day. They come back and say they want to double the amount of oil. Now, they haven't told the Iowa Utilities Board they want to double it, but that information came out during a hearing before the Illinois Commerce Commission. Interestingly, the pipeline company came to the utilities board and said, we don't need your permission, but just because we're nice guys, we're going to tell you what our plans are. And our plans are to drastically in increase the, the oil flow by making changes to the pumping station at Cambridge uh, in Story County, just mm -hmm. south of Ames, just north of Des Moines. But in Illinois, they came and asked, asked for permission. So during that conversation in Illinois, it was revealed that their intent is to pump one million point one one point one million uh, barrels a day through the pipeline that's a huge increase right huge increase and so um bold iowa challenged the uh, utilities board saying look uh, we think there ought to be a public hearing on this and we think there's a bunch of unanswered questions what kind of questions were asked by the illinois utility board i don't know i haven't had a chance to research that the, my other question is what did what did what did Dakota Access file in South Dakota and North Dakota? Mm -hmm. uh, because I'm not, you know, it's it's. I was surprised. There must be something in Illinois law that requires them to actually ask permission instead of just coming in and saying we're going to do this. But I think um, I think there is enough uncertainty at the staffing level at the utilities board to um, to make them want more information. They, 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 they seem to think that the questions that Bold Iowa is asking are reasonable. Again, they're not saying that all right, but what they're doing is they're giving people who want to file uh, inquiries to the board or challenges to what Dakota Access wants to do, they're giving them more time to make those, to file those, um, those uh, complaints, those, uh, those inquiries. Um, they're also asking Dakota Access to come back with more information. And so yeah. um, I think, you know, I, I think this bodes well. For those of us who have concerns about this, um, bodes well in what in what sense? Uh, that the utilities board is not just saying, "Okay, we're you know you you told us you're going to do it, fine, go for it." You know that they're actually wanting more information, that they're wanting to give the public more time to uh, to inquire, to question. We'll see what they do with the in, the request for a public hearing. Now, one other thing that I'm not sure about. They say they want these changes, this increased uh, flow, they're calling it, they're calling it uh, optimization, at the Cambridge site, which is about the midpoint of the pipeline through Iowa. But I cannot believe they're, they're not going to come back and ask for similar, quote, improvements at other locations across the state. Mm -hmm. I don't think one, I don't think inclu increasing the, um, the, uh, the ability to pump more oil through Iowa at one location is going to do it. You've got to have more than just one place where you're optimizing that uh, that pressure so we'll see well i guess my main concern just as a layperson here would be that the more oil that's flowing through the pipeline the more uh severe any sort of breach of the pipeline would be because you've got that flow there and it's just going to exacerbate whatever the spill is going to be are they offering or not offering Shouldn't they be mandated then to increase the bond that they have with the state as inadequate as it is? That's another really good question, Charles. You should be you should be sending a letter to the utilities board. Yeah, well, yeah. I think it's a pretty <laughs> obvious question. It, it's it's one that I don't think has been asked yet, but it's a very mm -hmm. good question, and that's part of the problem. I mean, that that's I think why you want to have a more public airing of this proposal is because 
a lot of these concerns haven't been asked. And sure, mm-hmm. I mean, it took a lot of effort to get Dakota access to increase the amount of money it was willing to put up for a bond. I mean, they wanted originally just to do $250,000. That's it. I remember that. Uh, and it was they were finally compelled to do $25 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that's quite a quite a difference, right? And so you like you said, if there if there if there's more oil flowing through the pipeline, I mean, and yeah, not only does that increase the possibility that you would have the probability that you'll have a bigger oil spill, but I think the additional pressure, the heat, the impact on on the joints, mm-hmm. uh, especially where it crosses underwater, because those those pipes dip down quite a ways to get across the streams and rivers in Iowa, mm-hmm. especially at those points, are you not increasing the risk of an oil spill? And that's, you know, and I understand why that might be somebody's biggest concern. And it's a big concern to me. But my biggest concern is, and we were, I mean, the, the existing flow is the equivalent of about 30 coal-fired power plants. Mm-hmm. And so doubling it is another 30 coal-fired power plants, increasing the amount of carbon emissions at a time when everything science is telling us is that we have to head the other direction and fast. And so, you know, from a climate point of view, this is... This is another nail in our coffin, I, and I, I mean that very literally. Well, you know, we've talked about this before, which is that um, the the main impediment to uh, the pipeline industry is to make it increasingly expensive for them to use this modality of transferring, you know, uh, the petroleum original product. Um, obviously. Their scheme is they know the end's coming at some point. Right. And they're going to extract as much as they can out of their present assets because otherwise they become stranded assets in the future, which they all know it has to be factored in because they will eventually be stranded assets. But they, the but they have to, Dakota Access has to basically ignore science and decide that its own no, then it's personal gain, science. it's proper, it's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 Gain is more important than human survival. <laughs> I mean, which is, I mean, that's basically what they're saying. Well, that's what all the oil and gas yeah. extractive industries yeah. are saying. Yeah. I don't think Dakota Access is unique among them. Yeah. Um, and of course, none of this will advantage Iowans to any degree, right? Because they're not going to rebuild the pipeline. Right. And I guess whatever modifications to the pumping plant are needed are hardly going to be well, and, uh, expensive you know, to make. And another big concern is, I mean, Dakota Access sold this pipeline on the premise that. We Americans need oil independence, and now it's clear that the U.S. is becoming the largest exporter of oil. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, Energy Transfer Partners, the parent company of Dakota Access, actually opened an office in Beijing mm. just just last month. Right. And so, you know, <laughs> what, what, how, how much of this oil is going to China? You know, well, right, right now, right now, about 2.5 to 3 million gallon or barrels a day are being exported. I don't know what percentage of those are coming through the Dakota Access pipeline, mm-hmm. but that's a lot. That's a big and, and 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 presumably, nearly all of this additional oil is going to be going to export. Right. Well, I mean, that was the argument you made in terms of the court case, which is right. it, it's not even something for the United States per se. It's simply right. for a, a limited number of refiners and exporters. And I'm wondering how, how the utilities board will begin to regard climate change in this conversation because, uh, you know, the, the Supreme Court just ruled against the landowners and the Iowa Sierra Club, the lawsuit that alleged that eminent domain should not have been used to build the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, and, and the ruling was uh, basically five to two. Uh, but Justice Mansfield, writing for the majority, uh, said, and I quote, we recognize that a serious and warranted concern about climate change underlies some of the opposition to the Dakota Access Pipeline. You know, Mansfield basically, the, the court basically says, okay, we understand that climate change is a problem. Well, the, the, so the, that, the question becomes, what is the uh, general good that we're talking about here? Eminent domain is about... Uh, the general good. Public good, yes. Public good. Yeah. So the public good at some point in some case needs to be determined right. to be reversing climate change or at right. least keeping right. it at right. the present level. Yeah, because somehow they were able to argue and convince the utilities board and convince the Supreme Court that there is a public benefit to flowing this oil across Iowa. Well, because the public benefit is to economic interests. At what point will we have a more expansive view of public good of the commons yeah. that says not having a bespoiled planet yeah. is a public good? 
Yeah. So again, so many unanswered questions. Um, you know, uh, Dakota Access also talks about growing demand from shippers. Well, you know, how how much of a how many of the shippers that they claim want to use their pipe to transport this additional oil? How many of those are actually affiliates of energy transfer partners? No. How, they, how how much of that is basically in the family? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and we don't know that they. Um, they also they also talk about uh, having to add more what's called DRA drag reducing agent mm-hmm. to the pipeline to accommodate the additional yeah, flow. Yeah, the, the mystery chemicals that uh, yeah, they how, use to solubilize all. Yeah, this. how good could that be for us? I mean, right. what what if that you know and, what, and how to what extent does that change the composition of what's flowing through there? I mean, mm-hmm. There's so many unanswered questions. And again, I'm 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 pleased that the utilities board has agreed that we need more information. We'll see where that goes. Anyway, stay tuned. Stay tuned, folks. Hey, thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon uh, with uh, Dr. Charles Goldman broadcasting from Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, Iowa.